This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. For more than a generation, we've all been taught that milk does a body good. But does it? It's an interesting question, and it's a very, very important one, and it's one we're going to be talking about in this part of today's show. My guest is the author of a new book on milk, and she's going to be debunking a lot of the misconceptions about milk, and she's going to also tell us the truth about the marketing as well as the enormous influence that the milk industry has over our lives. She has a really fun way of separating science from advertising, and she's going to help us uncover the inside story behind how milk became such a dietary staple and I think most important, at least for me anyway, is to get through all the conventional assumptions in the diet to reveal the ways in which milk actually interferes with our everyday health. This is a lot more than just a sobering look at how milk is not the wonder food that everybody has made it out to be. We're also going to talk about how going milk-free can revolutionize your diet and your well-being. Our goal is to get you to rethink the way that you consume milk and you think about milk in general and hopefully to empower you to eat better because it's really not that hard to drop milk from your diet and you may thrive without it. I'm Armin Brott. We'll start talking about milk and everything you really need to know about it when Positive Parenting continues right after this. Did you just look down at your phone? You did it again, didn't you? You know, you're flying down the road in a three-ton hunk of steel, and a text takes your eyes off the road for an average of five seconds. At 55 miles per hour, that's long enough to travel the length of a football field and cause some serious damage. Turn it off. Trust me. Whatever it is, you'll live. Learn more at StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad, and my guest for this part of today's show is Alyssa Hamilton, who's the author of Got Milked, The Great Dairy Deception and Why You'll Thrive Without Milk. Alyssa, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me on. Well, let's have you give us a little bit of background on milk and why it is that we have drummed into our heads the idea that it's good for us. Well, milk is high in calcium, and calcium is essential for healthy bone development. But so many, so are so many other nutrients, as I'm sure you know, that don't get the same spotlight, like magnesium and vitamin K. We're told to get all of these other nutrients from a variety of sources, but not so when it comes to milk. There, it's hard to pinpoint exactly how we've arrived from where we are now. But things are definitely different than they were when the recommendations were first set. They're different in terms of our nutrition knowledge. They're different in terms of the diseases we're suffering from. And they're different in terms of the demographics, and that's really key. We now know 50 to 80% of Hispanics, 60 to 80% of African Americans and Ashkenazi Jews, and almost 100% of Native Americans and Asians 
can't digest the lactose in milk as adults. And so when you take all of these facts together, you, we've got to start questioning the, the, sure. the recommendations. They're not evidence-based. The dairy recommendations of three servings per day for everyone o- older than eight, and right. the calcium recommendations, neither of them are evidence-based. Well, I'm just going to—you you talk about in the book about how a lot of this is being driven by the dairy industry— and their their kind of insistence that calcium is super important and it is, but that milk is is the best source of all sorts of things. How it how is it that we manage to to be so so convinced by so one convinced organization? For, yeah. Well, we have it from the industry, but we also have it from the government. And unfortunately, we have a government that has a double mandate. The USDA, government agencies such as the USDA, their mandate is to promote agricultural commodities and also to protect our health. And those two, at at this point, the way they're managing it, they conflict. I mean, it would be, in an ideal world, we could be promoting agricultural commodities that are that are healthy, but that's not the way it's it's worked in the past. So there's a conflict of interest there. So we're getting it from the industry. We're getting it from government. The government is supporting these ad campaigns, and it's it's filtered down into healthcare providers as well. We hear it from dietitians, many of whom are also supported by the dairy industry. So there's a, there are a lot of revolving doors and conflicts of interest. All right, so let's get back to this whole rather large group of people who can't digest milk properly. So that, I think a lot of people who will who are hearing this will understand, okay, so that's the stomach issues that you may have when you have milk. But there are medications for that. Does that solve the issue? Well, it just doesn't make sense. It's it, We don't need to get all of the nutrients, all of our nutrients from from milk. It doesn't need. It doesn't make sense to be medicating ourselves so that we can drink milk, so that we can get <laughs> nutrients. I mean, there are so many whole foods that have and are high in calcium. We've also, I think, bought into the myth that that milk is the most bioavailable source of calcium, and that's not true either. Vegetables like broccoli, bok choy, kale, they all have higher calcium absorption rates than milk. And right. where do I get that statistic? From the National Dairy Council. The reason <laughs> the National Dairy Council recognizes this. Right. Well, wait, hold on, Alyssa. Let, let's go back just a little bit because I want you to explain in, in a little bit of detail what bioavailable means. I mean, so you're eating this stuff, and you know, how much of it is actually getting absorbed by the body? How much of it is just moving on through without being touched? Uh, so give us a sense, because that, that's what bioavailability is, right? Exactly. And and so there are percentages of how much you actually absorb. And um, broccoli, bok choy, kale all top the charts. And milk is still, it's still up there, but it's not the highest. It's not. So I think we tend to overlook uh, the vegetables and um, other sources of calcium that are out there, we have this, we've created with the dairy food group, as I mentioned before, you know, we're told to get uh, the other nutrients from a variety of sources, but when it comes to calcium, all our, our calcium, the dairy food group is set up so that we virtually get all of our calcium from one food, and that's cow's milk. And so we have this, we've created a hierarchy of foods with dairy and calcium at the pinnacle. And it just doesn't make sense. I think that a lot of people lean on that dairy food group as a crutch. And 
um, think, you know, if you're drinking your three glasses per day of milk, then you don't have to worry about your other nutrients. Well, we're also told that we need, all need to be eating more fruits and vegetables. And where, is it, where can you find calcium? In these fruits and vegetables that we're not eating. So if we didn't lean so heavily on the dairy food group, we, we would have to be eating more of these yeah. healthy foods. You know, I found really intriguing. You, you spent a, a little section of the book talking about a blogger, and I'm just blanking on his name now, who kind of took it upon himself to, <laughs> it, to investigate whether he could actually eat what the my my plate is for the USDA their recommendations right and you know it seems like so they're talking about the the milk group or the dairy group and that how it's giving us the calcium and and stuff but there's also the protein which is kind of being double counted or doubled up on because we're getting they're recommending that we get we have some uh, low fat meats and stuff like that so and we're we're being overloaded with protein which in itself is interfering with the absorption of calcium, right? Exactly. And this is a problem, too, where our protein consumption is really high in, in North America, higher than everybody recognizes is necessary, and some studies are even showing healthy. So that, that leads exactly to what my fundamental recommendation is, is I'm not talking about everybody having to eliminate dairy from their diet. If you drink or eat it, dairy products and you do well and you and you feel good and you enjoy them, I'm not telling you to eliminate them. What I have a problem with is this dairy food group that is pushing three servings per day of dairy on an entire population, the majority of which can't digest it. So my suggestion is that we eliminate the dairy food group. We move dairy foods that are high in protein, low in added sugar to the protein group. And that way it becomes an example of a food that we can have rather than one that we must have. So I'm talking about eliminating dairy as a requirement, not as an option. And it's not so radical. The Harvard, back in 2011, out of the Harvard School of Public Health, they came up with their healthy eating plate in order to, in their words, fix the flaws of the USDA's My Plate. Well, notable on their healthy eating plate is the absence of a dairy food group, where we now have a blue circle symbolizing the dairy food group. They have a tall glass of water. That's just it's yeah. so sensible. So I want to get back a little bit to the, the composition of dairy, and there's some really fascinating things in the book. It's just filled with all sorts of fascinating stuff. But the, the difference between low-fat and full-fat milk and the effect that that has on our body and the rather counterintuitive effect, in fact. Well, right. It's causing all kinds of problems. First of all, it's not so counterintuitive what the, what the problems that it's leading to, if you think about it. Most children are not going to drink a a plain a glass of plain non-fat milk it's like water i mean it's it, it i actually spoke to the director of the office of school nutrition for detroit public schools she said kids won't drink it it's it's gross and they they'll only drink flavored milk strawberry milk well these flavored milks so what you have in a, a glass lot of sugar of, pardon a lot of sugar a lot of sugar start though start with a plain glass of milk can has equivalent of three teaspoons of naturally occurring sugar. Add another t three teaspoons in an eight ounce glass and you have virtually the same amount of sugar as you have in a can of soda. So like, for instance, uh, eight ounces of Coca-Cola has 26 grams of sugar. Well, eight ounces of these flavored milks, 25 grams of sugar. 
so we're we're moving. We recognize that we need to cut down on children's sugar intake. We're removing soft drinks from schools, and yet we're pouring it back. We're pouring the sugar back in in with the the milk that that going back to the woman that I was talking to, the the director of the Office of School Nutrition, she doesn't get funding. She said that actually the kids aren't asking for milk. They're asking for water, and yet she only receives funding to give them milk and not funding for the water stations that she needs so that she can provide the kids hmm. water when and where they want it. So we're... Um, you know, we're we're taking soft drinks out of the schools and and that's and pouring it back, pouring the sugar back in right. with, with these flavored milks. Talking to Alyssa Hamilton, who's the author of Got Milked: The Great Dairy Deception and Why You'll Thrive Without Milk. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Alyssa. McGruff the Crime Dog here. Let's hear from an identity thief. Identities are easy to catch online. I send people an official-looking email pretending to be their bank or credit card company and ask them to confirm their personal information. Looks them every time. Safeguard your personal information on the phone, online, and especially at home because half of identity theft occurs by someone you think you know. Keep your identity to yourself and take a bite out of crime. Learn more from the National Crime Prevention Council at ncpc.org. A message from this station, the U.S. Department of Justice, Crime Prevention Coalition of America, and the National Crime Prevention Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Alyssa Hamilton, who's the author of a, a new book called Got Milked, The Great Dairy Deception and Why You'll Thrive Without Milk. I want you to talk a little bit about some of the the more disturbing aspects, I guess, of uh, milk consumption. And you talk about, you mentioned some studies, I think some of them were in the Harvard Health Letter and, and some have been in a lot of other places. The WHO, in fact, a World Health Organization, talks about the the countries that have the highest milk consumption also have the highest bone fracture rate. And we're, we're told over and over again that, that women, in particular, when they get over 45 or 50, really should be bulking up on the milk because that will help them overcome the uh, osteoporosis that, that they could possibly get. So talk about that one, because that, that one's another counterintuitive one, or at least for for me anyway. Right, yeah, no, and, and actually what I take home is really significant in, in those studies the correlation because there could be other reasons we don't know exactly why the countries that are the highest dairy consumers also have the highest bone fracture rates it could be sedentary lifestyles as well and obesity but what i take home from that is also the countries that consume the lowest amount of calcium so for instance countries like singapore have the the lowest incidence of bone fractures and this is just more evidence that the calcium recommendations are not evidence-based the world health organization's minimum recommendation is 500 milligrams per day our calcium recommendation recommendations reach up to 1300 milligrams and again out of the harvard school of public health dr walter willett wrote a commentary about our calcium recommendations and his ultimate conclusion is at this point we should be lowering our calcium recommendations and raising those for vitamin D. And in terms of the risks, that we're sh- there are studies showing that diets high in calcium and dairy products have um, you're, you're at a greater risk for prostate cancer. There's a correlation. And, and again, that that's a correlation. We need to do clinical studies. 
But even the National Dairy, Rec Dairy Council recognizes that we need to do more research on that correlation because it's, it's a, it's a yeah. significant one. And also, one of the later, latest studies coming out of Sweden in 2014, published in the British Medical Journal, tracked over 100,000 men and women for almost 20 years and found that the women who were the heaviest milk drinkers, so three glasses or more per day of milk, were at an increased risk for, for mortality due to diseases such as um, cardiovascular disease and cancer, but also at an increased risk for bone fractures. And their risk for these diseases increased for every glass of, above one glass of milk that they were consuming. So there, there's a lot of research coming out that, that's questioning the virtues that we've long right. um, associated <laughs> with, with milk and just taken for granted. I want you to talk a little bit about some of the other ingredients that we need to be having along with calcium. I thought that was really interesting because I was reading about particularly magnesium that you should be having roughly a uh, one-to-one ratio of magnesium to milk, um, to calcium, or possibly some people are now recommending, I guess, two-to-one. And then also the the proportion or the, the amount of vitamin D that we should be having relative because not getting enough of those increases other problems. Exactly. It's problematic. And, and just to emphasize the irrationality of our fixation on having milk for calcium and strong bones and isolating, you know, focusing on this one nutrient, we don't have a pumpkin seed food group because pumpkin seeds are high in magnesium, which is a nutrient that has been shown Mer North Americans are low in. So, we know that we're we're not getting enough magnesium vitamin d as well it, it's that's part of the dr walter willett's commentary was that we're not focusing enough on the on that balance between calcium and vitamin d that we need right. that our vitamin d re recommendations are actually too low and that and that's causing problems well it's not like we don't know about that i mean if you go to costco or any place else where you buy vitamins if you if you look at the calcium ones they almost always come with vitamin d because there's knowledge out there at least in the scientific community that there's a certain per certain ratio of right. calcium and vitamin d and so they put it into the vitamins or they put well, it into the the supplements another problem is is that we're told to drink milk to get our vitamin D, milk is fortified with vitamin D, and so what what happens? We're we're also told to to consume low-fat, non-fat dairy products. Well, vitamin D, vitamins like not only vitamin D but vitamin A as well that are added back to these low-fat dairy products are fat-soluble. So you've got to wonder whether milk is the best delivery vehicle. I was actually just in Amsterdam to do some interviews for the Dutch translation of got milked and they don't enrich milk with vitamin d there and in germany as well they're not allowed to so they get they seem to get it there but we have all these um counterintuitive recommendations it, and another one I, actually there are just a, a couple more points that i think many people don't realize there's a, a growing problem. Pediatricians are, are noticing that one of the biggest problems they're seeing in their clinics are children who are anemic because they're drinking too much milk. And milk, they're, they, they, they're not sure exactly why this is, whether it's because the kids are filling up on milk, which is low in iron and not getting other iron-rich foods, 
or it, there's also some studies showing that perhaps milk blocks iron absorption, the calcium in milk blocks iron absorption. So we're, we're not, in these recommendations, we're not taking into account exactly what you're talking about, the balances that we need and, um, and what nutrients should be taken with other nutrients. And it's complicated. It's a complicated sure. science. And yeah. um, so at this point, it just does not make sense to be pushing a, an old... I actually see our fixation on milk as one of the oldest diet and health trends there is. Yeah. And, you know, even going back to the turn of the century, ever since the USDA started telling us to drink milk, they've been getting it wrong. In 1916, <laughs> okay. uh, a nutritionist for the USDA wrote a guide for and suge suggested that children should be drinking a quart of milk per day. That's four glasses, four eight-ounce glasses per day, which, you know, now we know is too much. And as I mentioned, pediatricians recognize sure. if, if toddlers drink that much, they're inevitably going to, it's going to lower their iron stores and right. potentially so lead to anemia. Alyssa, hey. let, let, me, let me stop you for a sec because we <laughs> just have a couple minutes left. But I want you to talk a little bit about what we could be doing instead. You mentioned kale and broccoli and bok choy, and you've talked about pumpkin seeds. And in the book, you talk about watermelon seeds. I mean, realistically, <laughs> how much of that stuff do we need to have to offset if we're going to to reduce or eliminate milk from a diet? I mean, you're well, going to have to eat five I, pounds of broccoli. Was, I, sorry, well, I, I missed the tail end of your question. No, I'm saying, you know, are we going to have to eat five pounds of broccoli in order well, to make yeah, up no, for a glass of milk? The thing. If you go back to the calcium recommendations, if we, that's why it's such so important to see that the countries with the lowest calcium intake are not falling apart. In fact, ha have the strongest bones. So... The World Health Organization's minimum of 500 milligrams per day. Well, I was in the store, and I picked up a bag. I've used this so often because I, I was just so surprised at this, this bag of soybean sprouts. One cup of the soybean sprouts, and that's nothing. You know, a cup of sprouts takes up a lot of space, has 46% of your DV for calcium. So that's 460 milligrams which is just shy of the 500 milligram per day recommendation from the World Health Organization. So, no, we don't have to eat five pounds of broccoli. And I, there's so many foods, it's not even just the, the greens. I, you know, they're now, it's so available. Chia seeds are, are full of calcium and, and sesame seeds. So I love tahini and I have, have a bunch of recipes. There are a lot of recipes in the book and meal plans to show how easy it is to get all the nutrients you need outside of the dairy food group. I even just pulled up, I thought, since you're a dad, <laughs> I pulled up Cookie Monster, um, a recipe for Cookie Monster, which is, a, you could use it as, you could have it as granola or you could have it as a, as a cookie, um, fun for the kids to eat. And it's full of um full of calcium just through, you know, a bunch of, there are a lot of seeds, pumpkin, well, pumpkin seeds aren't high in calcium specifically, but um, you're getting all your nutrients that you need, and also um, almonds are obviously a good source of, of calcium, and uh, one treat that I always like to, or uh, a, a trick that I, <laughs> that I grew to love is frozen bananas with almond butter sandwiched in between. So it's really, for, for kids, it's a fun little treat if you slice, slice the banana lengthwise and then, um, <laughs> and then you know, slather it with almond butter and cut it into, 
cut it vertically into pieces and freeze yeah. it. Of course, you peel the banana. And you have a, a, a really healthy dessert that's fun to eat for the kids. And it has, you know, you're, you're getting a lot of good stuff in Great. there. If you're, eating a lot, if you're eating a lot of whole foods, I, that's actually one of the things that I learned and surprised me most researching the book. Is I, I was never a heavy dairy consumer. I do like a little yogurt or kefir now and then, but I, was ne I never ate a lot of dairy. And so I used to think that I needed to supplement my diet with calcium pills and after researching this I realized that as long as I keep eating my greens and seeds and eating the way I, I do a lot of whole foods a diet based on whole foods I don't have to worry about about where I'm getting my calcium because it's, right. it's really it's in all those healthy foods that, that we're told we should be eating more of. Alyssa Hamilton's the author of Got Milked, The Great Dairy Deception and Why You'll Thrive Without Milk. Alyssa, thanks for joining us. Great to have you. It was my pleasure. It was fun. Hey there. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. You know, one of the things that says summer to me in the loudest possible way is amusement parks. And I got this question, and I just had to answer it because my daughter and I just won season passes to Six Flags. Dear Mr. Dad, my husband and I are going to Orlando to visit some theme parks with our kids who are ages 4 and 8. We are all super excited, but I'm worried about how to make sure the kids have a good time and the adults still feel like we've had a vacation. Any suggestions? Oh, I've got lots of suggestions, and you know, it's possible that my daughter and I will bump into you out there. But back to you. Going to amusement parks with kids as young as yours and still having fun yourself can, as you imagine, can be challenging. But it's definitely possible. And here are some ideas that I'm pretty sure are going to help you out. First of all, go online before you get in line. Make an adults-only visit to each park's website. Find out their hours, their age and height restrictions, their ride closures, whether you can bring in outside food, whether they have lockers, and so on. Most sites have recommendations for families with young children. Once you've mastered all that, go back and visit the sites with the kids, but show them only the things that they'll actually be able to do. There's no sense in getting them all excited about rides they can't go on. Then have them put together a list of their favorites. While you're online, follow the parks on social media so you can get money-saving discounts and followers-only access, and you might want to download the apps for each park you're planning to visit. Besides including maps of the park, complete with where all the bathrooms are, which is a really important thing, the apps usually include schedules for shows and photo ops with characters, restaurant menus, and a lot more. Speaking of restaurants, plan your meals. To get your money's worth, you're going to want to stay at the park all day, and you're going to need to eat. Of course, it's more convenient to buy all your meals and snacks in the park. And the good news is that these days, your food options go way beyond burgers, fries, and fried donuts. Most now offer all sorts of ethnic options, and you'll almost always be able to find fruits and veggies and other healthy foods. If money's an issue, bring as much food as you're allowed to, and details are going to be on the park's website, so read them carefully. Plan your day. The kids and maybe you will probably need some breaks during the day. If you're staying at a nearby hotel, consider going back for a nap and a dip in the pool. Then hit the park again. If not, all the parks have air-conditioned theaters that are great rest spots. Stay cool. 
Everyone needs a hat, plenty of sunscreen, and a water bottle. No exceptions. According to ThemeParkInsider.com, more visitors suffer from sunburns, rashes, heat exhaustion, and heat stroke than all other injuries put together. Start really, really early. If you get to the park before it opens, you can dash to the most popular rides before lines get really incredibly long. Think safety. If your child has a tendency to disappear into crowds, consider a wrist bungee or a harness. A lot of kids and adults find them really horribly embarrassing, so the mere threat of using one might be enough to keep the kids nearby. You might also want to consider one of the many GPS trackers. Some can be worn on the wrist and others attached to the kids' clothing. Split up. If you and your husband want to go on adult rides, think about having one of you stay with the kids while the other goes in the single rider line, which are usually almost always shorter. And then, of course, you switch off. Remember, you're on vacation. Relax and try to see the parks and the world through your children's eyes. Hey, if you've got a question or a comment or a suggestion for us here at Positive Parenting, drop us a line through the website, mrdad.com. We'll be back next week with another Ask Mr. Dad segment or a Parents at Play segment. But don't go anywhere quite yet because there's a lot more Positive Parenting coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. Okay, forest animals, today is a new day. Kids are coming to the forest, and it's up to us to make their visit a good one. Sparrow. Yes? Have you practiced the most popular bird songs for the year? Of course. Catchy. I like it. Okay, river. Dude. How's the temperature? It's a refreshing 52 degrees, man. Perfect for a little riverside shoeless relaxation. Ah, good. Owl, you here? Of course. Who's asking? I am. Look, you know the drill. Sleep during the day, scare the kids at night. Perfect. I love my job. Uh, oak tree? Sup? Still in the same place I left you last year. That's what I like. Consistency. Well, it's not like I'm going anywhere for the next couple hundred years. I know. I love it. Uh, turtle. Turtle. He's not here yet, man. Ugh, he's late every morning. You'd think you would have learned by now to leave the night before our meetings. Okay. Squirrel. Has anybody seen Mr. Mr. Squirrel? The forest has been preparing just for you. Visit a forest near you today. To learn more about cool things to do in the forest, visit discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hi there. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. This is the second part of today's show, and I'm Armin Brott. You know, a lot of people don't like the term potty training. A lot of people say that training is for animals, not for children. So let's just agree that the word training is synonymous with learning, at least for the purposes of today's show. After all, even as an adult, you train in something in order to learn it, right? As an analogy, let's talk about a new job. You get training. Someone who's already pretty good at it helps you through your new duties. On your first day at work, does your boss sit and wait for your cues that you're ready? Just ready for what, anyway? When you make a mistake, does your boss get upset and fire you? No, most likely you're clearly told what's expected of you and shown how to do it. When you make a mistake, your boss gently tells you what you did wrong and how to do it right. After a certain amount of time, you're expected to have mastered your new duties. Well, there you go. 
It's exactly the same with potty training. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking, as you probably have put together, about potty training. And our guest is going to be a woman who calls herself the Pied Piper of Poop. Her six-step process for getting your toddler out of diapers and onto the toilet has already worked for tens of thousands of kids and, of course, their parents. And now, it's your turn. I'm Armin Brott. We'll start talking to the Pied Piper of Poop about potty training when Positive Parenting continues right after this. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. My name is Ruth Rusi, and this is how I live United. I read to children as part of United Way's education program. It helps them create links between language and literacy and prepares them for a better academic future. I figure I have the time and they have the need. My name is Ruth Rusi. I help kids prepare to succeed in school. So I don't just wear the shirt, I live it. Give, advocate, volunteer, live united. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Jamie Glowacki, who's the author of Oh Crap! Potty Training. Everything modern parents need to know to do it once and do it right. Jamie, thanks for joining us. Sure. All right, so let me just start with something that I get when I I teach classes for expectant fathers. Almost every time somebody says, well, what about this thing that you can can toilet train your kids when they're six months old? Uh What do you think about that? Uh, that's EC. That's called elimination communication, and EC is a, a slightly different process, mostly because it's you, the parent, who's watching for the cues. It's some people call it infant potty training, but it's the child's not actually telling telling you with words. Yeah. So the whole theory is that the child can communicate. You know, they wiggle, they squirm, they have a, a, a cue of some sort, and the parent picks up on that and then can potty them. I've seen it work to great. Uh, great success with a lot of parents, but most parents are just kind of too busy these days to really do that effectively. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I characterize it as kind of potty training for the adults that you you need yeah. to be able to rush your child to the nearest toilet. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's it's important to understand that that the kids are not ready to regain or to maintain some control over these things. You can recognize the signs beforehand, but they can't stop it. Yeah, and some do claim that they can, but I, I honestly have never EC'd, and so for my purposes, you know, in fact, people who have EC'd, when they come to me, sometimes that kid has a hard time because the mom has or dad has picked up on the cue for so long that the kid has a hard time figuring out the cue themselves. Oh, really? Okay. So, you know, for me, I, I think it works great. It's what a lot of the planet does, because a lot of countries can't afford diapers, and I, I would... If you feel up to it, you would research it yourself. It's just not something <laughs> I, I do. I do get people who have EC who come to me. Okay. So, yeah. All right. So let's just start again then. Uh, what do What do you do? I mean, what 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 are the kinds of people that you see, and what are the issues that they're facing? I mean, obviously, listen, we want to get the kid off diapers, but are are there specific issues besides that that they come to see you for? Well, there's mostly you know the the book itself 
uh, the book itself has gone through many variations. And for uh, two years, the book was $40, and it came with online help direct from me. And that was a few years ago. And, uh, and I got to see modern parenting up close and personal and all the modern struggles that we have that previous generations didn't have. And so I, the book in its current form includes all those. So it was sort of like this research project that I had done, working one-on-one with so many people, thousands of parents. And um, so those, there's some really modern struggles. And then most people read my book. They, they go by my quote-unquote method, and then they, they'll contact me if they have a, a big struggle. Largely, pooping is the big issue these days. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And, you know, I actually talked to a pediatrician about this years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, about PD, and he was maintaining that one of the biggest issues at, at having to do with accidents was the fact that kids are constipated. And part of the yeah. reason is that we're, we're kind of encouraging them to hold it in a lot of ways, and so they end up holding it for too long. Yeah, that, there's, a, there's a doctor out right now, Dr. Hodges, who that's his like, big party line. He's very inflammatory. The that's the guy. The problem with that is that you know, we're the first generation ever to have three- and four-year-olds in diapers. So every generation before us, I was, I'm 47, so I'm including myself, uh, two was almost late. So the theory doesn't hold water to me because we'd have hundreds of thousands of people with huge issues. I think a bigger issue is our modern diet. And I do get children who are constipated, and that is a problem because, of course, um, you can be constipated and still pooping, and that's what a lot of parents don't realize. And we're not smooth inside, so this poop can sort of get lodged into the nooks and crannies, if you will, and mm. press against the bladder. Um, but, you know, given the, the crap that people eat in today's society, you know, I, would look at, I always look at diet first and foremost. And then I do get some very tough cases where, where the, the child's sphincter muscle just is made of steel, and they really have a hard time <laughs> releasing yeah. it. But I, I react pretty strongly to that theory because, and the, doc, the, the doctor who says this, um, this is his main message, and he's all over the place, and everybody keeps thinking he's a show for pampers. But, you know, he really encourages kids to be in diapers until they're four, and that's, that's too long. That's, that's way too long. That's a difficult case to yeah. body train. So, so that's right. my feeling. Well, it. so then <laughs> let's, let's get the straight answer then from, from you about when is a good time to start. I mean, you hear things about Sweden. It always has to be about Sweden, that, you know, places where kids are raised in cloth diapers, they're out of them a lot sooner than kids who are raised in disposables, and that makes sense because they really have no incentive. Or kids in disposables have no incentive to get out because they're so delightfully dry inside. But, the wicking and the sin. So one of the great things about cloth diapers is that it really affects the kid's mobility. So most kids want out. They, they want to be climbing. They want that big cloth diaper and the, the diaper soaker on the outside. They want it off. Um, yeah, Sweden and Finland, they do everything right. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's amazing, isn't it? They, you know, but it's funny because I have a huge following in Sweden. Um, so I think my, my process is very, very resonates with the Swedes. Um, my time frame is 20 to 30 months. And that's all ideal. That's that window of opportunity is for a couple of reasons. Uh, it's, it's a lull in learning for the child. So by that time, the child's probably mastered walking, eating by themselves, separation anxiety, and they're not, they don't have any huge milestones coming up. So there's like this lull. Once they hit three, they actually start going through individuation, which is the psychological process of realizing they're separate from you. And that's when free will and choice come in, and that's when you get the, you know, the three majors, um, 
the, the, the no, the very contrary, the power struggles, because your kid has finally realized they're their own person. And so if you add poop and pee to this mix, it's explosive <laughs> because they actually literally hold the power. And so they can drive you crazy. So that's why I recommend it before three. And 20 to 30 months, right around 24 months, there's almost always a magic window where it's super easy. And how and would you find that, that magic window? You don't. There's no manual. So you have to kind of, <laughs> that's why I always tell parents, jump in. Jump in. If it's a disaster, no harm. You know, we go a couple of days. And if it just feels like the kid has no gleam in his eye, it's not happening, it's totally cool to do what I call a reset. Um, but you want to jump in because what if you miss that? What if that kid is in that wonderful window of opportunity? Because that happens right. for so many parents. They start and they're like, are you kidding me? My kid's doing it, and it's been two days. And I'm like, you hit it. You hit the sweet spot. That's it. So does yeah. that mean that it should only take two days, or how, how long is the process last um, Realistically, it's three to, three to seven days should get you feeling really confident about it. You know, by that time, I have a couple of things. You know, too many people jump into potty training and expect a couple of things. They go right into wearing underpants. That's a huge no-no in my book. It's underpants have a muscle memory. They, they are cinched at the thigh and at the waist, which feels just like a diaper. So your child, for however long they've been on the planet, has been wearing a diaper. And so you put those underpants on the first day of potty training, and the kid's like, whatever. They just do their business in it like they always have. So it's pretty key to do a couple of days naked, and then I suggest commando, so pants with no underpants, so that they at least are the, the bare bum under there is a, a, a reminder to not go in their pants. Wait, did you say um, a couple days naked? Yeah, one to two days naked. You have, you have to catch the child mid-act. You, you have to. So they need, they need no obstructions because we're talking about, you know, 20 to 30 months. Yeah. A lot of kids don't know how to pull down their pants. So, you know, to expect them to, like, go from diapers right into clothes is too much. It is a lot, they need, yeah. They need, they need that time to sort of, you know, clear, clear the memory on those and get used to going to the potty on their own without any obstructions. So then, and then we would go commando. So meaning meaning no underwear. No underpants, right. Okay. Right. And then what's the next step after that? The next step after that is um, I, my book is arranged in six blocks of learning. And so the next block is um, outing, outing, small outing, so the child can get used to peeing and pooping in other places. So that's the next step. And the next uh, step after that is underpants. And the next step after that is self-initiation. So to kind of cycle back to the original question, uh, a lot of parents jump in thinking the kid can wear underpants and the kid is going to right. tell you when they have to go. And for the first couple of weeks, you still have to really prompt the child. You have to notice, hey, look at you. You're walking on tippy toes, grabbing your crotch. Why don't we go to the potty? <laughs> you know, you have to remind them. Um, so, you know, three to seven days usually gets most people over that big chunk. And people say, like, okay, I can get in the car now with this kid. I can go places. And, you know, depending on the child and their learning curve, it can take a little longer or it can take a matter of hours. I'm working with a client now who just, she, she was done in a day. So it really depends on the kid and well, the parents, you know. <laughs> I guess, yeah. I mean, th there's certainly going to be an awful lot of communication back and forth, hopefully. Yeah, and if the parents can stay, one of my big party lines is if the parents can just really get a plan in their head, not overthink it, and not get too wiggly. One of my big nevers to do is post on Facebook that you're going to start a potty training because <laughs> you will get 64 conflicting comments. 
and they'll they'll mess with your head and you'll go, well, I don't know if I'm doing it right. I don't know if I have the right approach. I don't know if I should try this. I don't know if I should try that. And then the parents go in wiggly and you have to remember kids are like dogs. They are so um, uh, what do I want? sensitive to our nonverbal cues. They are so sensitive to our energy and how we're feeling. Mm-hmm. And so if we go into the process like, oh, my God, I don't know what I'm doing. This is scary. Then the kid's going to be like, oh, yeah, heck no, I'm not doing this. Yeah. And it will go bad. <laughs> Talking with Jamie Glowacki, who is the author of Oh, Crap, Potty Training, Everything Modern Parents Need to Know to Do It Once and Do It Right. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Jamie. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Jamie Glowacki, who is the author of Oh Crap, Potty Training, Everything Modern Parents Need to Know to Do It Once and Do It Right. So you are referred to, at least on the cover of the book, as the Pied Piper of Poop. Was that you or some <laughs> clever marketing person came up with that? <laughs> it was half and half. I, I really am known as the Poop Lady. Kids know me as the Poop Lady. Um, and then I worked with Simon and Schuster to get a, a little alliteration going there for the Pie Piper of Poop. Oh, that, that's such a great, <laughs> great thing. I mean, I'm not exactly sure that I would want to have that, but I, I think no, it's, it's really it's funny too because everybody. I'm, it's a public service. I say because I'm the poop lady, everybody sends me their scatological humor, and I feel like y- you need a place to put all this humor, and I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, so you must hear constantly. Well, give us the real poop about. You know, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> all right. So. Talk uh, So you've talked about outing was the next stage. Mm-hmm. And then is there a time where a lot of kids will just backslide for a little bit? Oh, sure, sure, sure. Um, definitely, you know, if they've been at home and, and they start a, a daycare, you know, when they go back to daycare, a lot of times the mom and dad will take, you know, a, a long weekend, tack on a couple of days, take four or five days at home, and they'll get through the bulk of potty training, and then the child has to go back to daycare. So that first day back at daycare, there can be a little bit of a backslide from accidents. Um, there are anything, you know, kids love routine, toddlers crave routine, so anything can mess with their routine and it can throw them off. And that's, then I just tell parents, you know what, go back to the first block, clean it up, it, it'll be fine. I mean, clean up the process, not just the accident. Right, well, a little of both. Um, I, I tell them to do that, too. <laughs> um, and then... Um, then there are, of course, some more serious backslides that are true regressions, and usually that's when a second baby is born or a new baby, whatever number mm-hmm. that is, um, when there's a, a big uh, divorce, financial strain on the family, anything that's going to make mom and dad really wiggly and argue or, you know, create that nonverbal communication, that will send the child back. Molars, the two-year molars, can really throw a wrench into the system. Um and then, yeah, and then anything, anything like, you know, Fourth of July fireworks, there was oh, yeah. a lot of kids, um, you know, accidents because they were freaked out. So they, they can slide back, you know, and I, I always have to remind parents, I, I don't know when potty training became the only developmental milestone that parents are so pressured to do it fast in a certain time frame and no accidents. And I said, you know, what kid has learned to walk without falling? or ties his shoes perfectly at first, yeah, or rides yeah. his bike without falling. You know, this is a developmental milestone, not a contact. And so, so I have to keep reminding parents of yeah. that. <laughs> so you don't want to try to do it just in an afternoon. No. And no, you no, got to... No. You got to expect that there's going to be some accidents. I guess the, uh, one of the one of the big things I I think people are somewhat naive about, particularly first time parents, 
is that okay you got them in in underwear and that should be the end of it what's this what's this peeing in your bed at night i mean mm-hmm. what kind of craziness is that uh, how how do you deal with getting people to understand that that's going to be a normal thing and for some kids it may last for years uh what may last for years the accidents yeah particularly accidents, at night yeah accidents shouldn't last for years so that's i i tell parents you know there's there's a time frame and some kids you know some kids can take a really long time to potty train and that's just the kids you know and that can take you know maybe six weeks but if you're going months with accidents then something needs to be adjusted and certainly at night there are you know bedwetting at night it's a long time for some kids so especially over holiday weekends you know a kid you'll be at a barbecue the kid will be sucking down juice boxes behind your back off his sleep schedule knocked out because he's been running around at the party you know you can you can expect an accident because everything's off and you probably took in more fluids but if your child's having regular accidents you know two three times a week you need to go back and fix something or or book a consult with me because it, it, it shouldn't be like that. Something, something's gone wrong, and we can fix it. Okay. All right, yeah. so we got up to the, the third block, roughly. What's going on in the fourth and fifth blocks? What's happening there? Uh, the four, what is it? Commando? I don't have them all like, memorized. And I need them in order. So it's commando, um, okay. naked commando, outing, and um, then you want to – oh, initiation, self-initiation. Okay. Right. So that's when the child begins to ask you. And this is all taking place over the course of a couple of days, ideally? No, 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 no. Self-initiation comes okay. like three weeks after the process. Okay, thank no, you. No, no, no. The first couple of days, so it would look like block one is like one or two days. Most kids really do get it naked. And that's why you'll find a lot of people who say, oh, my child's potty trained, but only when naked. So that's kind of the easy part. The toughest transition is from block one to block two, which is wearing clothes with no underpants. So the child has to, um, uh, it's a hard transition because the clothes create sort of a a barrier. They create the sensation of privacy. And so um, that's the hardest leap. And that will come, you know, usually about five days into the process. And, and it, again, it depends on the kid, and it depends on what you, the parent, need to accomplish. You know, if your child sure. needs to be back at daycare in four days, you kind of have to nudge things along. Well, speaking of daycare, sense. oh yeah, speaking of daycare, I mean, it's it, if especially if there's a lot of kids, they just mm-hmm. may not have time or the desire to deal with a kid who has to go to the bathroom. It may be just easier to change the diapers. How do you get them to support what you've been trying to do at home? Yeah, that's a good question. I have a whole chapter on daycares. Um, you know, I always tell parents, try to check in. You know, one of the reasons I like people to get my book way before they want to potty train is for, these, you know, a few reasons. And one is, you know, check to make sure you get into a daycare that is supportive of potty training. A lot of the bigger daycares have uh, potty training rooms. So your child, once they're potty training, they'll sort of go into a specific room that has potties in it. They keep an eye. You know, they're really supporting the, uh, the process. Unfortunately, there's a lot of daycares that just don't have the time or the desire, and I've worked with a lot of daycares, and over the years, they themselves have been burnt. You know, the parent will come in after maybe attending to potty training for a couple of hours and say, here, my kid's potty trained. Now you have to watch them, and, you know, the daycare is almost in charge of the whole process. So daycare is really kind of gun-shy about doing it, and plus, you know, the mess is being poop on the floor. So um, so the, the daycare chapter really works 
how to work with the daycare and some things you can do. Most parents kind of overwhelm the daycare with their, you know, we're all <laughs> we're all kind of hovering parents this generation. And so parents will write out, you know, a three-page list of their child's signals and what to do and what to say. And, uh, and that can be really overwhelming for the daycare. <laughs> so uh, I had a client a couple of years ago who made her kid a T-shirt that just said, you know, I'm potty training. Don't ask me. <laughs> Tell me. Because um, if you ask me, I'll say no. Please don't give me a reward, uh, reward for doing a bodily function. It's like she made like a mini checklist on the kid's T-shirt. And it was, it was really awesome. And the daycare loved it. So. Well, you know, you talk about that in, in the very beginning of the book about how you kind of give some great analogies about how, you know, people don't like the word training, but training is just like an on-the-job kind of a thing. But also you, you talk about it as an analogy with walking and how mm-hmm. we don't tend to give kids M&Ms or stickers or something for learning how to walk, but you know, there's this, this need to reward the potty training. Why wouldn't you want to do that? I'm, I'm really against rewards. I think, it, I think, first of all, it smacks of dog training. Like our Kids, even at a young age, have big brains, lots of emotions, and to just, you know, here, do this, I'll give you a treat. It doesn't feel it doesn't resonate with the kind of parenting I'm on board with. Um, that being said, I know it works for many people. I see the disasters. I see the people that it doesn't work for, and it escalates. And I had a client once who gave her kid had a new bike, a new kitchen set, all these new toys, <laughs> a jar of candy on the back of the toilet, and the kid still was like, eh, no. And then it can result in these huge power struggles. I've met kids who get so smart, they'll meter out their pee, like one pee into, you know, five or six peas to get the candy. Um, I think it just creates a lot. And at this age, you know, parenting to some degree always requires some bribery down the line. Uh, I don't don't think you should start at it, too. You know, to hear you do this and I'll give you this in my... You know, in my parenting philosophy, I feel like there's other ways to work with a child than, than that sort of parenting. Yeah. And I know, I know it's not for everybody, but um, I don't know. I just don't care for it. <laughs> and for a lot of people, you know, are you uh, candy in the morning? Your kid's going to pee in the morning, you know? And the stickers, I just don't think any child holds it in their capacity of thought to say, oh, look, I stayed dry for six days. I'm going to get a prize if I stay dry for one more day. So a sticker chart to me just – it doesn't really – follow through with a toddler's thought process. Jamie who is also known as the Pied Piper of Poop, is the author of Oh Crap! Potty Training, Everything Modern Parents Need to Know to Do It Once and Do It Right. You can get more information about the book and a lot of the other things that Jamie's up to and her method and, and many more things at jamieglowacki.com and it's G-L-O-W-A-C-K-I and the Jamie is J-A-M-I-E, all one word, jamieglowacki.com. Jamie, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.